Welcome to the Discomfort by Design podcast, where we showcase people who chase discomfort, live life on the fringe, and pursue high adventure. We bring you the stories that inspire you to go find out. Now here's your host, Taylor Quick. Episode of Discomfort by Design. Today I'm joined with a somebody I admire very greatly. It uh, was on a short list of people I absolutely wanted to get on the show. Uh, the performance coach for the Tulane Green Wave, the recent Cotton Bowl champions, Coach Kurt Hester. Kurt, what's up, man? Uh, doing good, brother. I wish I was in a deer stand, but you know I'm sitting here with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry I took you away from the deer hunting. Uh, I guess I guess since I have to not be in the deer stand. I have to make other people suffer as well. So you uh, make me, make me feel the pain. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, we were, I know you and I were texting a little bit about that. Um, when we were scheduling this, that the downside to playing in a new year's six bowl game, as opposed to one of those, you know, those first bowl games that you get about that third week of December is it eats up your hunting season. Yeah, it, well, it kills, it kills hunting season and any kind of break middle break that you have. Um, it just shoots it down because literally as soon as we stepped off the plane, it was, all right, we got to get ready for 2023. I mean, it was that, that we had, we took one breath and we had guys, you know, we had guys set, uh, scheduled for the portal. So we had guys flying in, you know, that were, you know, that we're trying to get to, to transfer here. Um, and, you know, uh, and then all the guys that were getting ready for the combine the pro day and the senior bowl, they wanted to start right back. So I, I really haven't had, I had, one day to catch my breath. That was it. Man, that is, that's crazy. You know, and we hear all the time about how, you know, hectic the strength coach life is at the college level. And and oftentimes it is, it really, really is. But that, that Christmas break can be a pretty good, can be a pretty good, you know, time off where you get to spend some time with family and stuff like that. But when you have the type of season that you guys had, and, and it's, it's, it's been historic because, you know, you go last year, you're, you're two and 10, um, and, and you were, you were still at Louisiana tech last year, correct? Right. We were, we were three and nine. So basically it was, it was mirrored seasons. We both, both teams lost a lot of games by, you know, on the last play of the game, you know, we lost five on the very last play of the game at Louisiana tech. And, you know, we had Mississippi state beat, uh, we were in, we were all the way in it with NC state to the end. They were both top 25 teams, uh, Tulane had Oklahoma, you know, first game of the season, almost beat them. And a lot of their – they were one-score losses. So it was like, you know, I knew what this team felt because I felt the same thing but at a different school. Right. So, you know, you, you, you come in from Louisiana Tech. You come in in the middle of the year. They just come off of a – Tulane comes off of a 2-10 and 10 season, which is just abysmal. You know, everybody thinks that Coach Fritz is probably going to get the boot and then, you know, you're one of the hires he makes in mid-year. Come in and then to have that completely turn around. And what did you guys finish this year? Two and ten last year? And you finished what this year? Two and twelve. I mean, twelve and two. Twelve and two. Two uh, and ten to a flip around to twelve and two. That is insane. Well, I mean, considering, like, I think we, we sat as a staff, like my, my street staff, and we kind of broke down the season. And, and granted, I didn't know our players, um, you know, because I just got here in January. So, I mean, it takes really a year to know the mental and physical capabilities of a player. You know, I, I didn't really watch them play, didn't know uh, how they would uh, react in game situations, um, you know, didn't know their training aptitude. So, we were looking at it, and we kind of broke down the season, how good Houston, Cincinnati, UCF were how good ECU was probably going to be, uh, then having to play K-State. And we're like, man, if we're six if we're six and six or seven and five, it'll be a really good year. And, you know, just kind of looking at with the schedule without playing. And then, you know, and we did a good job because, I mean, Coach Fritch kind of, you know, he led the way about – he was really serious about 1-0. and You know, every practice, every workout, um, everything we did, you had, you, we were trying to go 1-0 and that day. And every drill, we tried to go 1-0. One and oh. Every lift we tried to go one and oh. And so we kind of kept that focus throughout the season. And, you know, we had that hitch against Southern Miss. And, and I knew, I told the team, I played these guys for nine years. And they have a lot of talent. They always do. And they're going to play hard. 
and we jumped out 14 nothing, and they relaxed, you know, and, and, and they knew at the end of the game, they knew they let it get away, that there's no way they should have beat us. But I don't think if, we, if we'd have won that game, I don't know if it would have catapulted us through what we, you know, to what we actually did uh, every game after that because we really stayed dialed in and focused because we knew we screwed up against Southern Miss. Well, and, and that's an interesting, interesting game anyway, because, you know, Coach Hall, the head, the head football coach at Southern Miss, was on Coach Fritz's staff at Tulane. He was offensive coordinator at Tulane before he came to, you know, to USM. And uh, several of those guys on his staff came with him from Tulane. Right. Um, so they, they weren't there for the 2-10 and 10 season, but they were there the year before. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I know that game was, was kind of earmarked for Southern Miss as kind of a, we, we want this one. You know, um, and and that that uh, that motivation can be there in the locker room. I know uh, I know Coach Ansar does a good job with motivation. The strength coach down there at Southern Miss does a great job with motivation. We've got a kid that played for us here at Union last year. That's a, a freshman running back for Southern Miss, and um, he's he's told me a lot about their their team culture, and I, I think they're turning things around the right way, uh, and probably will build a lot off of that win this season, I think that's probably their, you know, their big win for the year was you guys. And, but to, to flip that on the other side, taking a loss like that and, and turning it into a springboard for the rest of the year and to finish the way you guys did was just absolutely incredible. I looked at, and this is, this is something I want to, I want to deep dive on this if we can. Um, But I looked at these, statistics and the probability of y'all's game against USC in the Cotton Bowl. And with like 31 seconds left, USC had a 98.7% chance to win the football game and lost. 31 seconds, 98.7% chance per ESPN's metrics and lost the football game. How did that happen? I mean, one, our guys – you know, it's you have to play the game to the end, no matter what. You're going to play to the final whistle, so you might as well play hard every single play because you're going to be out there playing. So why not play to win every rep? And it just it kind of kind of like when you uh, when if you listen to the Patriots when they played the Falcons and they're mic'd up and you hear them next rep, next rep, don't worry about it, next rep. And that's kind of like the one and zero, the one and zero mantra is hey, one and zero on this rep. One zero in this rep. One and then all those one and those add up, and they did some. I mean, they they had some bonehead plays that that put us in in it, and you know, and, and some questionable calls in the end zone that that you know, right into our favor of what our defensive scheme was for those plays to get the uh, safety. You know, the, the 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 you know on the kickoff, the kid, you know, dropping the ball and it going out of bounds. Um, you know, I mean, when he could have just let it, he could have just let it go and it would have went out of bounds. Um, you know, or just fair caught it and got underneath it, uh, and he didn't. So, you know, they did some things where they relaxed, um, and then we did some stuff on defense to finally slow them down because that's a high-powered offense. I mean, they have you know, a lot of transfer five-star guys, um, a lot of five-star guys that were still there. A lot yeah, of teams. Yeah, they got speak. the Heisman Trophy quarterback. I mean, well, they're, they're not scrubs. No, and he was legit, man. Like that, he there's a reason why he was a Heisman Trophy. He could sling it, and uh, and an unbelievable competitor. Um, you know, and it just, we just re- refused to quit. And I was, you know, you know, just, we're going to play the next play and we're going to play the next play. You know, we got this far. We still have five minutes left to go in the game. Let's play it out. And, you know, um, and they, you know, to, to give these, these guys credit, they didn't blink at all. They didn't flinch. They didn't blink. They said, you know what? We're just going to finish. We're going to finish it the way we started. it. And, and, you know, toward, you know, once we got in that third quarter, they or really the second quarter, the defense finally relaxed because we played super, super tight, you know, the first quarter and a half. And then, you know, we started telling, you know, guys, just play your game. Play your game. Have fun. This is just, it's a game just like any other game. They're athletes like any other athletes. Just play your game and relax. And they finally took a breath and relaxed and then started playing faster. Man, that's – that's that's fantastic, and one of the things I want to dive in on this coach is is how you guys approach mentality. But before we jump into the the inner workings of what you do and how you do it, 
Could you do, um, man, just give us, give us a brief, you know, it had to be brief, take as long as you need, but give us a, uh, man, give us the Kurt. Who is Kurt? Give us the rundown yeah. on Kurt Hester, where you're from, how you got started in this business, family, all that. From way South Louisiana in the swamps below, well below Tippetoe, Louisiana, which is like on the coast, um, little town called Chauvin, Louisiana. And I uh, kind of grew up down there. Started training when I was 12, and that's about 1972, 73. Um, you know, bought my first weight set at 12 years old, one of those 110-pound plastic cement uh, weight sets. Um, started, built some of my own equipment, built my own bench, built my own uh, pull-up rack and dip rack when I was, when I was 12. Uh, didn't even, had no clue what I was doing. Just kind of read the pamphlet that the, uh, um, that the weight set came in and it was, you know, it was back squat, uh, good morning, uh, bit over row and uh, standing shoulder press and upright row. And so I just, that's all I knew besides pull-ups and dips and uh, been up, built a bench and I threw bench, bench press into it, built a bench out of two by fours and plywood. Uh, it felt really good when you lay down on it. Uh, you know, and then as I got older, um, my junior high, actually in the in the in, in the mid seventies, was big into training. And the, the, a junior high football coach, um, we had a decent weight room, uh, and you know we squatted, we inclined bench, we 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 flat bench, we front squatted, we did RDLs, we did deadlifts. I mean, it was for that time when a lot of colleges weren't even lifting at the time, and so. Um, that's kind of where I, I, I got a, you know, acquired some knowledge. And then one of my brothers was, uh, uh, worked in a shipyard. He was a welder. And so, uh, you know, building some equipment, you know, he could build whatever I wanted and then moved to Baton Rouge and, uh, hooked up with coach Gail Hatch. And, you know, it was our U S national Olympic lifting coach with a regional training center. And then that's kind of where my knowledge really took off. And, uh, went to Southeastern Louisiana state to play college football. They killed the program, uh, while I was there. And then I transferred to Tulane and, uh, got a scholarship to work in the physiology department, uh, you know, testing, uh, and running the physiology lab Then got hooked up with Tom Shaw. who's one of the best, you know, especially at the time was like the, uh, the speed coach in the country who had just, uh, gotten hired as a track coach. Uh, at Tulane. And so um, I, I would do a, t a test in a lab on, on his, on his athletes. And, and the trade-off was for him to teach me everything that he knew. And then LSU was looking for a, a guy who could be a speed guy and get the guys to pass a conditioning test because the year before um, 90% of the team failed the conditioning test. So they hired me as, as that guy. And uh, then I was, a, I was the first head straight, I was the first strength coach full-time for LSU baseball. We won two national championships back to back. Uh, and then kind of my career just kind of took off from there. Man, that, that's awesome. I didn't realize you were a uh, part of coach Hatch's tree. Um, man, the coach, coach Gail Hatch has an in, incredibly impressive resume and, and a bunch of, a bunch of guys that have coached under him that have gone on to be, Super, super successful, just like yourself. Um, yeah. And also, did not realize yeah. Tulane was yeah. your alma mater. Yeah, and then Tulane, yeah, and you know, Tulane, you know, it was thirty years ago. But um, you know, but a lot of those guys, a lot of guys that came through, they never trained there. They just would come and like visit and say, "I'm a Hatch guy. I train there." There's a difference. It's the difference between getting on the platform and getting your ass beat <laughs> on the platform every day, and just coming in and watching guys lift and go and sit and talk training in the office. Uh, you know, even when I coached at LSU, I trained three days, three nights a week there with him as a coach. Man, that, that's I would awesome. leave, I would leave, uh, you know, six, seven o'clock at night. He would stay and wait, wait for me. And it, it was the, and actually it was the, it's what helped me in my career the most because it would be just me and him on the platform and, you know, just getting technical coaching from him. And then in between sets, we're talking about different aspects of training. And so that, that helped develop me, you know, pretty at a, at a pretty, pretty fast rate uh, for being a, you know, a relatively young coach. 
So would you would you compare Coach Hatch with weightlifting to like a Louis Simmons from powerlifting? Yeah, but I think at a higher level because he's training guys at the international level. You know, he's, right. he's training guys for the Olympics. You know, he's training. He, you know, he took. We had so many guys uh, from the Baton Rouge Hammond area who made the Olympic team, who went to the Olympics. Like you know, you're talking about guys who played football. Uh, you know, like high school football players and some of them college football players and had the genetics and turned them into Olympians. And what a, what an absolutely incredible legacy. My goodness. Um, so you go to LSU, win a couple of national championships with baseball and kind of that jump starts your career. And then, you know, obviously wife, kids, all of that. How did you how did you balance having a wife, having daughters, having that section of you know that portion of your life with the demand of being a Division One strength conditioning coach? I, I mean, it, the way everything kind of played out, like every every time I needed a very knowledgeable coach in my life, they just kind of fell right into my lap. Every time I needed something, my career just kind of every step of the way just kind of fell in place. And I look back at how fortunate I was because strength and conditioning was in its infancy when I started. Um, you know, people think it's been around forever, but man, when I, when I started, it was so bad at the college level. I mean, it was either you were a power lifter or you were a bodybuilder. There was very few people doing any kind of, you know, uh, complex uh, movements, very little, zero speed work. I mean, that's where you got, I think of what our moniker is. What's our moniker? Strength and conditioning coaches. So it was basically absolute strength or bodybuilding and bodybuilding and conditioning. There was no such, there were very, very little plyometrics, zero speed work. You just bury guys into the ground uh, on a daily basis. And so because I was fall out, you know, I had Coach Hatch, I had Tom Shaw, I had Dan Paff, who's, you know, one of the greatest uh, Olympic sprints coaches America's ever had. I had those guys in my life teaching me, you know, and, you know, so it was easy for me to move up um, in the world because people were like, no one knew anything about, especially there's very few guys that really knew technical Olympic lifting and they knew nothing about, about speed work. So it was easy for me to move up. And, you know, after we won our second national championship in baseball and set the uh, all time home run record, which is probably never get broken. It was like 188 home runs in a season. 205, yeah, 205, I think, after after Omaha. Um, I opened up my own facility on the North Shore of New Orleans, and I was training about – I ended up training about 500 athletes a day. And that's kind of where I, you know, really evolved because I didn't have to worry about pleasing a, a coach. Because, yeah, you, coaches have these – a lot of them have these crazy, archaic ideas about what you should do compared to what you need to do. And – uh you know, where I didn't have to bow down and put some really dumb stuff into my program because that's what they wanted. Um, I could really learn and, and, and do a lot of testing and trial and error with, with uh, high school athletes. And I had this huge combine business before. Uh, I mean, there was, it was only me, I think, and Mike Boyle at the time that had facilities that were doing it, um, you know, in the late eight, in, in, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the mid nineties. So, um, you know, that helped develop me even more, um, you know, and, and so when I, you know, my, my wife's an, an, R, an RN, she runs, into, uh, uh, she's a charge nurse at, at night, you know, nights at a, at a major hospital. So when I was interning in GA and she made money, you know, she graduated ahead of me. So she made enough money to where I never starved to death. You know, we could pay bills. And uh, then I was at LSU. Then I opened up my own facility started, I had started having kids when I was at LSU, they were very young. And then they kind of grew up in my training facility for 12 years. Then uh, Katrina hit and I didn't know what the state was going to be like. And so I went into business with a couple of guys that I trained for the draft from Tennessee with D1 sports training and uh, went into business with them. I think I stayed there for eight or nine years. Um, and that allowed me to like raise, raise my kids and be around them, you know, then got, you know, really tired of the corporate, corporate life and decided to get back into 
college strength and conditioning. And I was actually in Denver working on a couple of different projects and working with some of the Broncos. And um, uh, Skip Holtz called me and said, hey, do you want to you want to come back and coach in college football? You want to come back to Louisiana? So I, I flew flew back home, went, went and met with him. And I, and I loved him because he's a freaking awesome guy. And he loves to hunt and fish, so we kind of hit it off. I just kind of said, you know, you let me hunt on Mondays during the season, uh, I'm here. And he goes, done. <laughs> so I took the job. <laughs> that that might be my favorite contract negotiation I've ever heard. That's fabulous. Yeah, he was like, and I used to I used to sit and stand, and I would shoot a deer, and I would just I would text it to him because they, they had uh, Monday mornings, they had uh, eight o'clock meet, uh, staff meetings. And I was the only one that, that didn't have to go because they had about three guys that hunted and on the staff. And they were so mad, like, man, we treat you different than everybody else. I said, dude, I put it in my contract that I'm hunting on Mondays. <laughs> but I would send, I would send the, uh, a staff text of like, you know, an eight point, you know, or two does down. And, and they would be like, man, are you kidding me? So, so I didn't negotiate better, man. Hey, man, that is so great. That's <laughs> But but you know that on the flip side of that though you can't just negotiate things like that if you haven't put in the effort and the time to to have the the, the platform to stand on to say hey this is what it's going to cost you to get me and this is what I'm okay with and this is what I'll come for and that's it. And, well, the and, thing was, well, the thing was though, it was like they weren't paying anything. The pay it, it was the it was the bottom of the scale in Conference USA. Now Conference USA is not very good. But I was at the, I was at the very bottom. And I said, "Look, man, there's going to be certain concessions that you're going to have to make for me to get here. If I'm going to make, you know, I can make this salary, you know, personal training people, you know." And I said, "But I want to come back, and I will do I will do the job." And and one thing I'm proud of is that we not only did we go to seven straight bowl games while we were there, but we led a group of five and guys being drafted and free agency. Yeah, and, man, y'all put a ton of dudes in the NFL from Louisiana Tech yeah. during your time at Ruston. Guys that were two-star, three-star. Some guys that were no-star, you know, two-star, three-star, no-star, and then they were getting drafted. We had, we had, you know, we had a first-round first draft pick. So, um, you know, Trent Taylor, who led the nation in receiving his senior year, uh, you know, didn't even have a – we were his only scholarship offer. That's that's crazy. Um, there was a kid. There was a kid from Mississippi right down the road from here in Meridian that came and played for you guys named Jim R. Smith. And yeah, dude, that kid. It baffled me that he didn't have the you know the offers. You know all the SEC schools and all that stuff. But he comes to Louisiana Tech. He's a freaking two two sports superstar in football and baseball, and had a great career. Yeah, I mean, it took. You know, he was behind. Uh, two really good quarterbacks, and uh, you know, then when he and then we, he kind of had to throw, we kind of threw him in. You know, really, he kind of wasn't really ready yet, and but he had, but he had to start. He was going to be the guy, and he would get really down on himself, and I'd have to, you know, I mean, from a, more than anything, because he was unbelievably strong. I mean, he could throw. I mean, he was a two. He snatched two twenty five like it was ninety five. I mean, he was a three three thirty five power cleaner. I mean, he he was a six hundred pound squatter. I mean, he was in, I mean insanely strong, but he would he would get so hard on himself and down on himself. I think I spent more time working on it with him mentally and keeping him conscious of of his thought processes uh, than any other athlete I've ever worked with. And then his senior year, you know, we went ten and three. We beat Miami in the uh, Independence Bowl, and uh, you know, then he goes on. You know, he what. COVID screwed him because he was a COVID year guy. Uh, when he came, you know, he came out and then COVID hits. So he gets uh, free agency to, to the Patriots. Well, then not two weeks after he signed, they, they signed Cam Newton. And then so they dropped him. And, uh, you know, for them him to go to the USFL with, with Skip and win the whole thing, you know, and have an unbelievable, you know, uh, USFL career for that first year was, was, was outstanding. But, but that's so indicative of what you what you seem to create everywhere you go, man. And I, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want people to hear this wrong message because this is something I ardently believe is that coaches don't win championships because we don't play. They're, they're, and no matter how many games you win or lose, games are won and lost by players. 
They always have been. They always will be. We can contribute to wins and losses, but but not not even a fraction of the degree to which players contribute to it. So I want to I want to make sure I preface that that players win and lose games, hundred percent. But look at the game. A, I mean, look at the game they played last night. Correct. I mean, I mean, you got you got five star after five star, and there was I mean, there was a definite you know disparity in, in talent. I, mean, I don't oh, care man. what people say about TCU and how fast and what they've done, you know, training wise. It doesn't matter. You know, either you have, you know, uh, either you have the horses or you don't. And, you know, Georgia's got horse behind horse behind horse. That's right. And, and not to take anything away from Kaz and what they do at TCU, because Kaz is an exceptional strength coach, and so is Scott Sinclair. And, and But but that that should tell you exactly – it proves exactly what I'm saying. You can have exceptional coaching staffs, and, and Kirby Smart, Sonny Dykes are both exceptional coaches. They have great staffs. They have great performance coaches. They have all the resources. Everything's there. But at the end of the day, the players play and the players decide the game. And so what I what I want to what I want to get into, Kurt, is it seems to me as I've followed your career for quite some time and I've watched and I've noticed I've I've coached kids that have gone and played and and been under you. And I've heard the feedback from that side. Um when I, when I coached at Starkville High School, we had a guy that was a, a kicker and a punter that came to Louisiana Tech. His name was Garen Boniol. Um, he, left, uh, he left after – I think around right around the same time you guys left, ended up at UCF. Um, but he, he would always come back, and, and he and I would talk about, you know, your program and what you do and how you do it and all these things. And I've always wanted to kind of pick your brain on this. So why is it that you put so much emphasis on the mental part of what – these kids do because at the end of the day, it's the physical attributes play such a massively huge role. And so many people get hung up on the physical attributes and the performance side from the body standpoint and not so much on the mental standpoint. So when you look at a team like Tulane, who on paper is woefully, woefully overmatched against a team like University of Southern California, who has the Heisman Trophy quarterback and five star after five star down the roster. Then you look at the coaching staffs, and on paper, you've got Lincoln Riley, who's, you know, coached multiple Heisman Trophy candidates, has been in the playoffs year after year, whatever. And then Coach Fritz, who, as great of a coach as he is, doesn't have quite the recent accolades that someone like Coach Riley does. How do you? Man, how do you, how does your process work? Because on paper you should never have been in that game, and yet here you guys are overcoming everything and winning it. Hey, I mean, I interviewed for Colorado job one year, and I turned them down because uh, I just didn't think it was the right right fit for me. But uh, their AD Rick George asked me, he said, "Kurt, all I hear about is how you put a team together, uh, the culture, and the way you train, the way you talk to them." And he goes, "He goes, you know, how do you do it?" I said, and I, and I really looked at him. I was like. I mean, Rick, all I can tell you is that all I know how to be is me. I don't know how to be anybody else. I don't – there's so many strength coaches that try to be somebody else. And you can hear them, and even in their, their speech manner, mannerisms, like trying to be Scott Cochran or trying to be Tommy Moffat. And it's like, you know, dude, be you. You know, and you can hear, you know, the guys that have been under them, and they try to mimic those guys. And they're not even true to themselves. And I think I've always been pretty true to who I am. Um, I'm a reality-based guy, so if you're not doing what you should be doing, I'm going to tell you. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Um, and I think, too, more than more than anything is uh, that I'm, bi- I'm diagnosed bipolar, and so I've been very have to, have to be very conscious of my own mental state all the time. It doesn't take much for me to get like super super jacked up, and it doesn't take much for me to get really really depressed, and so I don't take medication, you know, don't take medication for it. So I understand kind of where I'm at and my own thought processes throughout a day, throughout the week. And because I'm so conscious of, of how I have to think and react to things, I'm very, it's easy for me to point out a kid who's like, might not be having the right, the, you know, the best day, going up to him and figuring out why, talking to him, instead of bashing him first, you say, man, what's, what's going on in your life to where you're not 
you're not you're not putting a whole lot of effort in today. Um, I, I'm big on listening to their verbiage, what's coming out of their mouth, whether it's positive or negative, and getting them to try to turn it, turn things around, one way or the other. Um, and you know, looking at the moment to see, you know, if someone's stepping up to lead in situations that someone needs to step up and lead. Uh, is someone, you know, a situation where someone has to step up and hold somebody accountable, you know, and me calling their attention, why aren't you holding this guy accountable right now? Why does it have to be just me all the time? And making them very, you know, conscious of what's going on while we're training, while we're on the sidelines, when they're coming off the field, instead of just worried about, you know, I post, you probably saw where I posted about uh, AAC champions, uh, Cotton Bowl champions, zero towels waved, zero yes. jumping jacks performing, yes, no I fake juice. That. Yeah, and I, it was like over three hundred thousand people, like you know, saw it, and you know, had, and only had one negative comment, and uh, with thousands of other comments, and but only one was negative, and because we're you know, as a staff, we're in tune to what's happening on the field because the players don't they don't see and they don't care that someone's jumping up and down or swaying back and forth, they could care less. They're on the field focused on the, on, a, on a play. So, you know, uh, I would have the players turn around and like try to get the crowd up. The players do it, but no, we were, we were so focused on what what's happening on the, you know, during the game and when they're coming off, getting them, whether it was a great play and getting them to focus back on the next play or whether it was a bad play and getting them, you know, to drop that, get it to, to you know, just to forget about it really quick and be ready to focus on the next play. And, you know, and then helping with the training staff as far as like guys coming off, you know, I did a ton of soft tissue work, uh, you know, and tempering throughout the season in between, in between series. Um, Plus to all the, all the, all the uh, psychological stuff that we do when they're coming off, plus all the nutritional stuff that we do uh, between series um, so, you know, we're so cognizant of that, that, you know, uh, I'm not worried about doing all the fake juice bullshit. I'm worried about winning the game. And, you know, um, I think being bipolar is what, you know, I turned it into a positive. It has really helped me be able to communicate with, with our athletes at a higher level. Well, that's, that's so interesting because, you know, a lot of people would take something like, oh, I'm bipolar and that's, that's a detriment, right? Like that's something that, that handicaps them in life. It's something that, that they have to, um, that they use as an excuse or, or a crutch for however they may act or however they may react in situations and things like that. But to, to hear your perspective on that is to say, look, I, I, this is something I live with every day and I have to do such a great job of managing my own mental state in order to perform that I've learned how to teach others to do that. And, and so that, man, that's, that's so, that's so crazy because at the end of the day, you know, people are always looking for that gimmick, right? Like, well, what is, what does Kurt Hester do? That's different from everybody else. And, and at the end of the day, you're like, well, I'm, I'm bipolar. So that's it. <laughs> um, have some mental issues and you'll be a great strength coach. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and I think if, if I weren't bipolar, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't, I would not be, I wouldn't be very, I don't think I'd be as good as I, not even close to as good as I am. Cause, cause you can put the greatest program together on the planet and it doesn't matter unless you can communicate and execute it. And, and you, and that's like a, that's on a rep by rep basis too. And so I, because it makes me have to stay in the moment all the time. Um, you know, and I, 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 it's really helped me out in my career. So I, I've never used it as a, an excuse. I mean, when I was younger growing up, you know, everybody, you know, you have anger issues. You need to see a therapist. You have, you need a psychologist. You, you're so angry all the time because mine, my bipolar is, is, is convergent. So it's not, I don't have these huge high swings or low swings. It's my high and low come together and kind of, and I'm kind of in an agitated state. And so, you know, they, they always said, you know, you got, you have some really anger problems. And then once I was diagnosed and then it was kind of like, oh, now I see why I act and react and more, more, more react to things. And I was on medication for about a year. I didn't like it. I didn't like the way it felt. I it made, it made me think really slow. Um, and so I got off of it 
And literally it was a year later and my wife was like, you haven't had your script. You know, I haven't seen your script. You have you filled your script? And I said, so Sean, I haven't taken that in over a year. And she was like, really? Because you're doing a really good job of controlling it. And, you know, I just kind of found a way to, to understand it. No, that's, man, that, that's perfect because at the end of the day, we all have, there's always something, right? Everybody has something that's affecting them mentally, emotionally. Then we're, we're, we're in a continued state of stimulus within the world we live in from technology to, you know, just things that are, that are being thrown at us all the time. We don't, we don't, as a society and as a culture, we don't really slow down very much. We don't really go and, and get quiet and get still and remove all of those inputs all the time. Um, and, and, and so it's made for a very different generation of people uh, and people handle stress so very differently. This is one of the reasons why I love hunting so much is because it removes so many of those inputs from me for a while where I go out and can just strip away all of the things, all of the stuff, all of the, the just constant berating that's happening against my brain and against, against my emotions all the time. And I can just remove all of that. It's one of the reasons I love it. Um, so how, man, how are you, how are you, how are you doing that on a grand scale with a football team? Because, and, and, and piggyback off of that, what is it? Can you walk us through some kind of way? How did you change the culture? And it may not have been just you, but how did the culture change at Tulane? You don't go from two and 10 to 12 and two on accident. That does not happen. You didn't, you didn't bring in seven, five-star transfers. You, you didn't recruit the number one recruit in the country at six different positions. You didn't bring in a brand new coaching staff. What happened? Well, they brought, I mean, we did get a lot of new offensive coaches and the, 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 Pat, the, the old offensive coordinator was like a super negative human being that like brought a black cloud on, on basically over the entire program, even on the, you know, even, even brought the black cloud over to the defensive side almost. And so, you know, coach Fritz kind of, you know, retooled the organization and, you know, at, at one point he wanted a lot of like all these KPIs. And I was like, coach, my strength is not sitting at a computer inputting data. And I said, my strength is, is building relationships with these players and being with the players as much as possible. And if I'm sitting in the office all the time, because I'm the only full-time guy for football, I have three assistants that have multiple sports. So wow. sometimes I'm the only guy. So sometimes I'm the only guy, you know, coaching football because they have to be with other sports. And, you know, and Coach, so, let, me, let me say this real quick. I want, because this, that is, that's nuts. Because I mean, you're talking about, a team that just played in a New Year's Six Bowl, won the American Athletic Conference, beat the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, list of things, 12-2 and two team. You have one full-time football-only strength coach. Yeah, that I mean, is insane. Yeah, I mean, for being, in the, for being in the AAC. So, you know, and then we all share the same small weight room. So it's like hard to get, you know, it's, you know, it's just, it's hard to get a lot, some, some really good programming done because of, because of the, the size of the weight room. Um, you know, so you have to be super creative. So, you know, I did, we do a lot of stuff, man. If, if I'm doing what everybody else is doing, I'm not trying to beat them. And that's my mentality. So I go far and beyond uh, what anybody else will do with an athlete. Most strength coaches, they're, they're so worried about, oh, do you back squat versus do you, you know, isolateral squad do you power clean versus deadlift do you you know uh you know they're they're so worried about you know exercises uh and they're not worried about the total program itself so i mean we we basically from what was done before to what they were we started doing was a completely different animal and i think the first where i got their attention was the first time i walked out on the field uh and i had cleats on and I'm teaching every single drill and I'm going through drill after drill after drill, doing it at slow speeds, doing it at fast speeds. And they're like, they had never seen a coach go out and do that before in their life. And right when I did that, about five players said, coach, we got your respect already. You just tell us what to do. And we had four unbelievable seniors that were uh, um, our captains. And I told them, I said, look, I need your help to help so we can turn this team around. And they, and they did. They whatever I asked them to do, they got it done. Um, but 
you know, throughout training, we, we did uh, a lot of deep, uh, deep breathing work. Uh, we did, uh, you know, taught them like uh, on Fridays before games, we would do yoga and then lay down and do a, uh, a lot of deep breathing, a lot of deep uh, diaphragm breathing. Then we go into uh, um, be working on uh, their vision. And so I would set the stage where I'd go through basically the next day, what they were going to see, the uniforms, uh, you know, the uniforms we were wearing, the uniforms that the opposing team was going to wear, the stadium, the smells, the temperature, what it felt like, focus, getting them focused on, you know, what the warm-up was going to be like, you know, uh, you know, what, you know, them in different schemes, what, uh, what they would do in different schemes, how, you know, making the perfect tackle, you know, you know, running the perfect route, throwing the perfect, throwing the perfect ball and working on their, on their vision uh, too, where they could see it before they actually played it. And so we, I mean, we did a ton of different, different things year round. We were big into martial arts all year, working with all our athletes on, 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 on hand skills, working with, um, with our DBs, receivers, quarterbacks, and running backs on vision and cognition throughout the whole year and then catching a couple of hundred balls after working on vision and cognition. Uh, I mean, we were just doing all this extra stuff that has nothing to do with the weight room or with the, our speed work. And then everything we did agility wise, we turned it into what skill they were performing on the field, but having a reaction component to it. Uh, I'm not a big Matt drill guy. I kind of told, I, I, I wrote a article on simply faster um, dot com. I think it's called the death of Matt drills. Uh, something like that. But if you Google, you get on Simply Faster on the blog and hit search my name, it'll come up. And, you know, I said, we'd, I'd rather do stuff that's football related uh, skill wise. And, you know, and, and from a technical standpoint and from an academic standpoint, then go out and do a bunch of useless drills where the toughest guy is going to be tough and the weakest guy is going to be weak. And when we're done, the toughest guy is going to be tough. And the weakest guy is going to be weak because being tough is a choice. Either you choose to be tough in a specific manner, whether it's a drill or modality, or you don't. I mean, that's why there are guys who are tough in the weight room, but then you go out on the field and they're not tough. There are guys who are tough doing speed work or conditioning. You put them in the weight room and they're not tough because they didn't make the choice. So you can beat them into the ground all you want. And until the athlete says, you know what, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to do this at 100% they're not going to, you're not making them tough. And I think it's, I think from a football standpoint, football coaches, they, they think that you can beat toughness into a guy and they'll, they'll say, Oh, Matt drills makes, you know, made our team. And no, it doesn't. Your, your five-star athletes made your team. Your guys who made plays made your team, you know, whether they were tough or not, that's a different, that's a different, uh, a different thing. But, you know, now your, your weaker guys are just a little better conditioned, but they're just better conditioned, weak-minded guys. And that's just – I'll always feel that way, and no one will ever change my mind about that. Well, and you've got the track record to kind of go with go with your thought process, and, and that's something that, I, that you and I share in common. I'm – man, I'm, an, I'm a complete believer that toughness is a choice that you make, and it's, it's – it's, uh, you know, we, we hear mental toughness all the time, especially around football. Um, guys screaming about, oh, we're not mentally tough. We're not mentally tough. And you ask a coach one day, like, I mean, seriously, anyone that's listening to this that's on the strengths and conditioning side of things, or even if you're on the, the coaching, the football position coaching side of things, when you hear somebody say something about mental toughness, I would, I would challenge you right now to just say, what does that mean? What does mental toughness mean? And watch as they have no freaking clue what they're talking about. Like they're, they're just saying something and they're, they're just, just trying to sound like they know what they're talking about. Most people don't have a clue what actual mental toughness is. And, yeah. and even in, like in that article, I, talk, I talked about, you know, mental toughness is about disciplining yourself to stay in the moment at that task at hand. That's all it is. It's like stay in that moment at a task at hand and give effort towards it. And, you know, and no matter what it is. So if, if you're doing speed work, and you're teaching like, you know, an acceleration start at 10 yards and you're teaching it is, is can they focus enough to do what you're asking them to do? Can they, and they, can they do it at a high level and they can do it at a high rate of speed? That's, that's discipline. And that's, that's mental toughness. 
and to be able to do it over time. And, you know, and so, you know, uh, doing like the little things the right way over time, that's, you know, because you're, you're making the choice to do it. And, you know, it, it's just making the athlete cognizant of the fact that, okay, make the choice, make the choice right now, make the choice right now. And, and, and not getting tired, tired. It's like, you know, it's kind of like disciplining a kid. If you get tired of disciplining your children, they're going to grow up to be not very good adults. And a lot of parents get tired of the job of keeping their children on the right track. Well, it's the same thing in training. Guys get tired of just staying on top of them day after day after day after day to get them to focus on exactly what they're doing at that moment in time. And that's just what, you know, in my head, I, I do a lot, you know, because I'm, because I'm bipolar, I do a lot of self-talk, you know, in, in my own head. And, and I'll do it as soon as I get up, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll say, you know, attack the day. I'm going to say something because this is what I say to my head. So you might have to cut it out, but I'll say, don't be a pussy. Attack the day. Don't be a pussy. And I'll say that right when I, as soon as my eyes open and that sets the tone for me to get up and get things done. And before every workout, every workout group, I'll walk into my office and I set my, I set my own brain to get to when I walk out that I'm ready to give everything I can to keep these guys in the moment. But I have to go in my office and kind of reset between every group to make sure I'm very I, I don't get lazy and don't get the things I need to get done with these athletes in that moment in time. Man, that's that's spot on, Coach. And you know, I'm I'm blessed um, where I am now. Our head our head football coach here, um, he he gets it. He really does. And he and I were talking over Christmas holiday and we, we talk about mental toughness a lot, how to foster it and how to grow it within our team. Um, you know, and, and high school, high school is a different animal because you can't go recruit kids that you want. You have, you have to, uh, you have to develop the kids that you have. Um, you, you can't just go out and hand select. We're going to offer these kids and try to get them in. You got to take what, uh, what, what lives in your, in your d- district and, um, the kids that come in and enroll in the school and that's all you've got and you got to do the best you can with them. And, uh, he sent me, he sent me a thing. Uh, and I read this message to you. He said, you and I have talked about toughness and this is the best I've ever read that matches my philosophy on the meaning. And this is what he sent me. It was a little, a little excerpt of a, of, of something that says instead, real toughness is experiencing discomfort or distress, leaning into it, paying attention and creating space to take thoughtful action. It's maintaining a clear head to be able to make the appropriate decision. Toughness is navigating discomfort to make the best decision you can. And research shows that this model of toughness is more effective at getting results than the archaic ones of the past. And at the end of the day, that is, that's exactly what I believe that toughness is the ability to make the next right choice. The next right choice, it's the ability, I think, more the right choice, but I think it comes down to humans are always trying to be comfortable, whether it's the temperature, oh, it's cold outside, put a jacket on, or or turn the heat up, or it's hot, I don't want to sweat, turn the heat down, Uh, I'm hungry, I want to go eat right now. They're trying to stay, humans are, you know, especially in the society we live in now, they're constantly trying to be comfortable. And, you know, if you can get the athletes to go, okay, you're a little bit out of your comfort comfort zone right now and, and have them conscious of being outside of their comfort zone. Okay. Now let's overcome that and let's get something done, you know, and that's, but you have to have eyes. You have to know, you have to know your, you have to know your athletes. You have to have, you have to listen. There's you know, you have to be, you know, you have to have really good communication skills. They have to, you know, you have to have trust with the athletes uh, for them to trust that you're trying to help them become a better, not only a better athlete, but a better human. And so I think it's just getting humans to acknowledge that, you know what, in order to succeed, you have to get a little bit uncomfortable and you got to get used to it. You have to, you have to acknowledge it and understand it and then overpower it. And I think that's, I'll probably be doing more of that than anything else this year. I mean, the training, yeah, we put some good program together. We have a great, you know, 
acceleration, decelerations, uh, velocity, uh, agility program. We have we do all the extra stuff uh, that we do to to help solidify your abilities. But at the same time, I think it's going to be coming off of where we came from and expectations. And you know, it's natural for athletes to kind of live off of what they did the year before. Um, it was a long, long season. I mean, I think it was 17, 18 weeks. It's like a pro, it's like an NFL season. And, you know, it's going to be hard to get them jump started because we just finished and we're about to start, uh, you know, next week, um, right back into it. And we don't have time, uh, you know, to, to have a bad day or a bad week. And, and I'm very conscious of time. I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of teaching them, uh, you know, the benefits of being time conscious and that, you know, that it, the time is now and, and that none of us are on this planet for, 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 for any length of time. And, and so if you're going to make your mark, you better do it on a daily basis. So, you know, I think that's going to be probably the, most of my energy is going to be going into, uh, you know, the mental aspect of, of, of training. No, oh, that's great. Um, and, and man, I, I think you've got it going on down there. I know you had a, you know, you had a great, great program running at Ruston. And I can't wait to see, you know, how, how things pan out over the next several years. I'm really interested to see how your guys handle success because, you know, it, it you can always, you know, t- go and look at how people handle failure. Um, but I think one of the most interesting things is seeing how people handle success and whether or not, that success is something that causes them to just kind of sit back, rest on their laurels, or is it spurring them on to further success? So I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested to kind of see how that goes with you guys. Um, real quick, I'm going to plug something. Is your book still available? Yeah, it's still on Amazon. Yes. Heck yes. So, uh, Kurt Hester wrote probably one of my favorite books I have ever read. Um, and, and, you know, as a strength coach, we do a lot of reading. A lot of strength coaches do a whole lot of reading. And oftentimes it's stuff that sounds like periodization training for sport or science and practice of speed training and essentials of athletic this, that, and the other. You know, like we get all these really fancy textbook names. Kurt wrote a book called Rants of a Strength and Conditioning Madman. And it is a collection of stories from his career that is absolutely exceptional. Um, if I ask you about one, would you tell it? Yeah. So true or false, you killed an alligator in a weight room one time. Yes. <laughs> tell us that story real quick, coach. Uh, in training, we were about to do a max effort, you know, squat day. And um, I had done like a lot, bunch of crazy stuff. And, and the thing is, I don't, I don't film anything. I don't, post anything. If I do something, it's for my athletes. It's not for me. It's not to, you know, to show what we do or try to get likes and stuff like that. And I told the athletes, you know, when I, when we were done, I said, look, this is like Vegas. What stays, what, what's done in here stays in here. It's something I do to get you, you know, to, to get y'all motivated. And, and I'd done some crazy stuff before um, on, on max effort day. And so I, I was like at a point where I was like, look, We've been talking about intrinsic motivation the whole year. Like, I don't know if I'm going to do it, do anything this year on, on squat day. And, and my staff was like, nah, coach, you got to do something. I said, look, man, but the only thing I haven't really done was like kill a bear or something in front of, in front of our athletes. I said, and they're like, coach, you, you alligator hunted as a kid. I said, yeah. He goes, why don't you go catch an alligator and bring it in the weight room? And I was like, well, it's, you know, you have to have tags, like a $1,500, $15,000 fine if you're, if you, if you take an, an alligator without tags and somehow, I don't know, I don't have a tags and, you know, and, you know, it's coming up in a couple of days. I'd have to go set lines out and stuff. And they're like, and they, and one of my coaches was, you know, he's a country kid, played football at, at Clemson and you know, a big hunter and fisherman. And he's like, coach, I'll go with you. And we're playing, actually playing ghetto ball like two days before. And I pulled, pulled my hamstring really bad. And, um, and so I had to send him to work with a, with a high school. And so 
uh, I had already set the lines and everything a couple of days before. And uh, so he couldn't, he couldn't come with me. So I'm sitting there with a pulled hamstring. I can't hardly walk. And I'm push pulling a P-Rogue through the swamp to where my lines were. And I saw one line was down. And so I pulled it up and it was, it was about seven foot, seven foot alligator, a couple of hundred pounds. And uh, so I pulled him out, jumped on his back, taped his mouth up, threw him in the P-Rogue, just kind of sat on him and paddled out, you know, out <laughs> to my truck and then threw the, my P-Rogue in the back of my truck. And I couldn't put him in the back of my, in my, in the bed of my truck in the P-Rogue because the tape, I had his mouth taped up. I couldn't get his, couldn't get his feet taped up right. So he couldn't move or walk. So I just threw him in the, in the back seat of my truck. So he's in the back of my truck. It's throwing that tail all over the place, hissing, hissing at me, lunging at me. I just kept turning around, kind of back fisting him to try to get him to chill out. So I put him in one of my dog runs because I trained labs for duck hunting. And I took my dogs out, put him in the run. And then I just brought him in. Um, the next day was a uh, squat day. And uh, so I, I I took my shotgun, pulled the plug out of it, and put poppers, which is which are it's a load that you use for training dogs. It's, it's, it's just a blank. It's like a shotgun blank load. So I put seven, uh, put seven in my in my shotgun and uh, painted my whole body like camo, like uh, like Arnold and uh, and Conan the Barbarian. And then I had a knife on my arm, and so I. I told him to put on a song and when it, whenever, whenever he kicked on the song, I told him to tell the guys that I, you know, that I'm running late and I was in the, on the you know, in, on one of my back doors of my facility. And so when he, when he put on this kid rock song, I kicked the door open. I threw the alligator in tossed it as far as I could. Cause he was rolling in my hands. It was hard to, you know, hold on. He's about probably 250, 300 pounds. And, uh, uh, then I rolled that shotgun around and, and hit like seven shots straight up. Bah, bah, bah. So smokes all over the place. Dudes are diving everywhere. And they thought the alligator was fake. And then, it, then the alligator stood up and hissed. And they were like, oh my God, it's real. And uh, <laughs> then I just pulled a knife off my 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 shoulder and I said, uh, I forgot what what uh I said, uh, whatever their 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 um uh their rival was. And I was like, this is what we're gonna do to this team. And I jumped up and put the knife right through its head into the stuck it into the platform. I just kind of left him there the whole time we maxed out. And then I skinned him out later and uh, fried fried up the whole tail and his legs. Yeah, so that was uh, – but no one said a word for like three or four years. They kept it a secret. <laughs> they took it to heart. And, you know, and like, you know, so when I see all these these dudes, you know, thinking they're badass for having a, a, a medium shirt on, uh, for like hitting boards over their backs or whatever – you know, doing dumb things before a game and, and just to get social media attention and media attention, you know, I, it aggravates me because, yeah, you know, look, that's like child's place to some of the stuff I've ever done. I never videoed it. I never videoed it and it never got out and we never talked about it. It was just, it was for that team and that team only. It wasn't for the fans to see. It wasn't to get likes. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't to be, you know, some goofball on social media and to, to do so that you're a social media hero to get a job. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was strictly for the players themselves. That is, that is exceptional. And, and to me, that sums you up perfectly. Um, coach, I'm going, I'm going to wrap us up right there because that, I don't think you can get any better than that. Like that's, uh, that's awesome. Coach, where can, where can people find you if they want to get a hold to you, ask, have any questions, want to maybe come check out training at Tulane or just kind of pick your brain? How can they get up with you? Uh, the best thing is to email me at kurthester16 at gmail.com. Uh, just give me, a, you know, give me a shout. I try to get back with as, as many guys as I can. I mean, it's, you know, I had probably 400 freaking text messages after this, after this last game. But, um, you know, people want to know what we do and, like, pretty much just said it and they could just listen to this pod podcast. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to talk. <laughs> well, um, coach, I will, uh, I'll get this posted up here very shortly. And, and man, I appreciate you coming on today. Um, and let's, uh, let's connect back up in a week or two and see what you got going on for the rest of the semester and try to see if we can figure out a day you come up to Mississippi and shoot some pigs with me, man. I got a hog problem. I would love to get you come up and help me take care of them. 
Perfect. I got a, I got an AR that I'm getting, I'm waiting on a scope to come in a, a 308. Perfect. So, um, perfect. That sounds like a bacon baker right there. I love it. Um, well, coach, I appreciate it, man. As, uh, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you and we'll catch up with you next time, brother. All right, brother. You've been listening to the discomfort by design podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a review and we'll see you next time.